There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The first Samuel chapter 16. If you can, please stand when you get that. Go down to verse 14. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go through the Bible verse by verse from Genesis to Revelations. We are currently in the book of First Samuel. Bible says, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Father, we pray you prepare our hearts this morning, Lord, that your anointing would come upon us. Help us to learn things today, Father, that we can put in practice in our everyday life. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. A lecturer teaching medicine was given a classroom observation. He took out a jar of yellow liquid. This, he explained, is urine. To be a doctor, you have to be observant of color, smell, sight, and taste. After saying so, he dipped his finger into the jar and then put it into his mouth. His class watched in amazement and disgust. The teacher told them to pass the jar around and do the same thing. Well, being the good students that they were, the jar was passed around, and one by one, without fail, they dipped their finger into the liquid and then put it into their mouth. After the last student was done, the lecturer slowly shook his head. He then informed them, If any of you had been truly observant, you would have noticed that I put my second finger into the jar, but I put my third finger in my mouth. (laughs) I think we'd all agree that we live in a confusing and uncertain world today. It's confusing because the appearance of things do not always reveal what reality is. In the normal course of life, we find ourselves making decisions and forming judgment based on how things seem, only to discover in due course that the way things seem is often very different from the way that things actually are. The solid-looking house may turn out to be riddled with termites. The apparently sincere friend may turn out to be a liar. The utterly confident businessman may be completely incompetent. The pimple face private that the platoon made fun of will be the one that throws himself on the grenade. Now, of course, it works the other way also. The unimpressive can turn out to be far better than we ever expected. I think we see both those extremes in the life of Saul and David. Saul, who was a head taller than everyone else, would turn out to be a dismal failure while the little shepherd boy David, who was spurned by his family, would turn out to be Israel's second greatest king only after Jesus himself. The older I get, the more I realize that things aren't always what they seem. I'm learning the perils that exist when I judge things, good or bad, by simply from what I see on the outside. 
Look at the first part of verse 14 with me. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. I'd actually planned to finish the entire chapter today, but there are so many questions and so much confusion surrounding verse 14 that by the time that I got to verse 15, I already knew that I had enough material for a single sermon. I lied on the one call about it only taking six minutes, though, so keep praying for me. This morning, we're going to look at the two issues that verse 14 raises. The section begins with a devastating loss and a continual torment to Saul. Samuel anointed David in Bethlehem as the one chosen by God to be a different king than Saul was. We learned last week from verse 13, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David in great power, but at the same time, the Spirit of God departed from Saul. What the writer tells us about Saul at this point is truly remarkable. The immediate sequel to the Spirit rushing upon David is this. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord troubled him. As soon as we learn that the Spirit rushed upon David in this new way, we see that the Spirit also departed decisively from the life of Saul. This underlines the fact that God had rejected Saul. And why did the Lord take his spirit from Saul? The Lord himself abandoned Saul because Saul had first abandoned the Lord. When God rejected Saul from being king, we read the cause of this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, where we read, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the way of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. We see there that God's response to his rejection is because of the word of the Lord. Now, there are a couple of important points that I would like to draw your attention to because these verses can be taken out of context a couple of different ways. First, I'd like us to look at the phrase that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. We need to keep in mind that the way that God's Holy Spirit relates to a New Testament Christian is far different from the accounts that we read of in the Old Testament. The promise of the New Testament is that when God sends the Holy Spirit into the life of a believer, which happens the very moment we trust Christ, we are told that the Holy Spirit will reside in us forever. Jesus says in John 14:16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. The advocate mentioned there is speaking of the Holy Spirit. And while it's certainly true that God will not abandon us or depart from us, we can grieve him quench him, and push him and relegate the Holy Spirit into a corner of our lives. Later on in the book of Ephesians, Paul will address this. This is Ephesians 4.30. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 30 tells us that while we are permanently sealed, we can do things that will grieve the Holy Spirit. What kind of things, you may be wondering. Well, after verse 30 of that chapter that warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, Paul provides a few examples in verse 31. It reads, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, <clears throat> forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Now, that list certainly isn't exhaustive, but it's given to let us know that any type of sin grieves the Holy Spirit who lives within us. But even when we do fail, 
We can be confident that the Holy Spirit will never leave us or forsake us. But it was different in the Old Testament. In the early history of Israel, God's Spirit equipped the leaders of his people for a formidable task. In the period prior to the introduction of the monarchy, the judges raised up by God were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do these things. And particularly, we're specifically told this of Samson. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the line in pieces as one tears a young goat. You know how easy that is, right? We've all had the occasion to tear up a young goat from time to time, so we all know what he's talking about. Saul himself had been promised and received the same empowering. Samuel had said to him, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy and be turned into another man. And when he came to Gibeah, this is what happened. When he heard the threat of Nahash the Ammonite, it says, The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. In each of these cases, there is an emphasis on the fact that what happened to Samson and Saul was a power that was beyond them. The power that rushed upon them came from elsewhere. This was the very opposite of a man gathering his inner strength to meet a particular challenge. These men were equipped by God himself to meet the need of that hour. Now, the observable effects of the Spirit upon these men varied. Samson would do things like tear a line in pieces, strike down 30 men, and burst the ropes that held him. Saul prophesied he would become angry, and he raised an army. But in each case, it was the Spirit of God that appointed the leader to do what was needed at that time and in those circumstances. But now we see that Saul was no longer equipped by God for the leadership, as God's Spirit has been removed from him. Years later, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered, he fully deserved to suffer in the same way that Saul did. David, broken by his sin, prayed in Psalm 51:11, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. I suspect that David had in mind this day when God did take his spirit from Saul. It's highly significant that when Samuel anointed David in Bethlehem, precisely the same words were used, but with an important addition. The boy was being equipped as Samuel and Saul had been equipped to lead God's people, but with him there was one difference. The difference is now we read this, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The same spirit came upon David, but not now as an empowering for a particular moment or a specific task, but permanently. But not in the New Testament sense of, him, of living in him, but rather resting upon him. Now, of course, the opposite thing happened to Saul. Look with me at the second half of verse 14. And a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Okay, the second thing we need to nail down here is where it says that God allowed or sent or depending upon your translation, it could be a distressing, tormenting, harmful, or evil spirit from the Lord to trouble Saul. There have been Bible critics and devout Christians who have questioned why a good God would send an evil spirit to torment Saul. Now, this is an important theological point as it can taint and confuse our view of God if it is not understood correctly. So please allow me a little time to unpack it for us this morning. 
We read in verse 14 that God removed his spirit from Saul and that an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, if we're careful to not understand that verse correctly, we can come up with some real bad theology. At first glance, it makes it sound like as if God is the source of the evil spirit that is tormenting Saul. But we know from Scripture, especially from James chapter 1, that God is never the source of any kind of evil. Let me read it to you. It's James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, the sentence structured there in the Hebrew indicates that the evil spirit is from God only in the sense that God has permitted it to come into Saul's life. As a result of his disobedience, God has taken away his spirit and was now allowing another spirit to torment Saul. Perhaps the story of Job provides us the greatest insight concerning this. Now, in a different context, Job recognized the hand of God behind the harm that was coming his way. Job 2.10 says, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Now, unlike Job, however, Saul's suffering was a consequence of his being rejected by God. Now, if you've ever read Job, you know that when Satan desired to tempt Job, each time he had to come and ask permission from God before he could do anything whatsoever to Job. So in that case, while God didn't send the calamities in Job's life, he did allow them to prove his faith of his servant Job. You may think, that's unfair to Job. And yet here we are, thousands of years later, still honoring and admiring the integrity of Job. Not to mention the eternal rewards that Job will one day enjoy. Once again, let me remind us, this life isn't all that there is. It's merely a testing ground for the glories that await us in heaven. However, sometimes, either for our own good or for the purpose of judgment, God can and does permit calamity to come into our lives. For instance, God would frequently use the evil nations around Israel to punish his people when they sinned against him. All this happened by the permission of God rather than as a result of his own directive will. For God cannot be the author of anything that is evil. So then, how could an evil spirit be sent from the Lord? Well, as I said, evil spirits and even Satan himself can do nothing without the Lord's permission. As such, demons actually can serve the purposes of God. How? By providing people a choice. If there was no opportunity for wrongdoing, people would have no choice, and we would all be reduced to a bunch of moral robots. Thus, we would never know if our love for God was truly authentic. Basically put, in order to have true love, you have to have the option of free will. For example, let's say when I first got married, I was worried that Connie was going to cheat on me. I wasn't. I mean, look at me. Who's going to cheat on this hunk of manhood, right? Modesty prevents me from fully developing that this morning. However, just for the sake of argument, just to make sure she didn't cheat, let's say I chained her to the kitchen table while I went to work. Now, of course, I would never do that. The woman scares me a little bit. But if I did, would I ever truly know if she was faithful? No, I wouldn't. It would only be giving her the freedom to choose someone else that I would know that she is unfaithful. Uh, 
I didn't think Connie was going to be in, the, in here this morning, so uh, we'll just move on real quick. Uh, that's called cowardice. Uh, I knew Doug would tell her anyway. But unless there was a choice for Connie to make her own decision, my praise or approval of her would really be truly meaningless. That's why God leaves the door open and uses Satan as a tool to give people a meaningful choice. If there were no options provided by Satan, people would have no choice, and there would be no way to truly know if our love for God was truly sincere. So God says, if you don't want to love me, walk with me or believe in me, the only other option left is you will be deceived by the devil. And even then, it is God's hope that even that will drive you into his arms. I think the New Testament equivalent of this is church discipline, where we read that there was a man in the Corinthian church who was having an affair with his own stepmother. Listen to how Paul deals with this situation. This is 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. I've decided to, let, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What is the Apostle Paul saying there? He is saying that by removing the covering and the fellowship of the church, he will just allow that man to continue in his own sin and rebellion. Now, why would he do that? Because what that man is doing will eventually wreck his life. And when that happens, the hope is that he will repent and then be saved. Think of the prodigal son who, while standing in pig slop, finally comes to his senses and goes back home. But what was the evil spirit mentioned here? Now, I've read some commentators that say this is just a bad case of depression. But along with many other scholars, I think this is far more than depression. At this point, we need to realize this is not a psychiatric diagnosis of Saul's condition, but a theological understanding of its cause, which was the departure of the Spirit of the Lord. The ancient historian Josephus explained it as follows. He writes, But as for Saul, some strange and demonic disorder came upon him and brought upon him such suffocations as was ready to choke him. Another commentator likewise attributed Saul's problem to demon possession or at least demon oppression. He writes, this was not merely an inward feeling of depression at the rejection announced to him, but a higher evil power which took possession of him, and not only deprived him of his peace of mind, but stirred up the feelings, ideas, imagination, and thoughts of his soul to such an extent that at times it drove him to madness. Now, we also need to keep in mind that Saul is far from an innocent bystander in all of this. It is his own sin that has brought him to this point. I like watching those prison TV shows like Lockup that chronicles the lives of those who are incarcerated. It simply amazes me how many of them will blame everyone except themselves for the predicament that they find themselves in. They live in a constant state of denial, and that's not a river in Egypt. But here's the thing. The vast majority of those in prison are guilty of some type of crime. I remember one warden who reminded them, none of you are in here for singing too loudly in the choir. Although we had a man at our previous church that always wanted to sing specials, but to be honest, it sounded like a piano full of cats being pushed down a flight of stairs, but that's not my point this morning. 
Many of those people in that lockup show refuse to repent and admit their guilt, and so their delusion deepens year after year. And since they refuse to face reality, the enemy of their souls is able to have his way with them. Now, we can draw a parallel with this into the life of Saul. By nature, Saul was a suspicious and a revengeful man, and this gave the enemy a beachhead for their operations. As a side note, we have to make sure that we don't make that same mistake. Paul warns us in Ephesians 4 where he exhorts us not to give the devil a foothold in our lives. This is Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil a foothold, or you could say beachhead. Well, what in the world does that mean? Let's say that someone has wronged you in some way, and you know the Lord is prompting you to forgive them, but you simply refuse to do it. Well, you have a multitude of excuses why you shouldn't, but the bottom line is you're just being flat-out rebellious to the leading of the Holy Spirit. What happens when we do that? Let me use myself as an example. Let's say Connie and I are having a big argument, which quite honestly never happens. I refer you to my comment about being scared of her. But anyway, we both know the Bible is clear in its command not to go to sleep until the issue has been resolved. I remember one time we stayed awake for six solid days refusing to apologize. I'm just joking. It was only four days. What I'm trying to get across is it is possible for us to allow things in our lives that while initially seem like no big deal, can one day cause major problems. Ephesians 4.27 says, do not give the devil a foothold. What does that mean? Do not give the devil a foothold. It's like what the Marines used to do when they would establish a beachhead on an island. In World War II, after the Japanese took the entire South Pacific with their army, the United States Marines started to go out and retake those islands back. The plan was that the Marines would land on an island and they would establish what was called a beachhead. Now, a beachhead may be an area only 10 yards wide and maybe 200 yards deep, but it was just enough space to give them a toehold, a foothold, or a beachhead upon that island. That way they could fight the enemy not from a ship, but from the ground. Then from the beach, they would begin taking back the island a little bit at a time until they finally took it over again. It is interesting in the history of World War II that once the Marines landed on an island and established a beachhead, they never lost that island. Once they got on it, you weren't kicking them off. Victory was now assured. Now, there would be some lost battles, but the ultimate victory could be counted on. Spiritually, this is what happens when the devil establishes a foothold or a beach hole or a beachhead in our life. He doesn't try to take over your whole life. He starts by getting one little area. This is my little secret sin over here. It's just a personal habit. It's the area that nobody knows about. It's just this little compartment in my life. Everything else is good in my life, but this one area, well, it's not so good. But it's okay, because I've got it contained to one tiny area. We are so sadly mistaken if we believe that. Do you think Satan is just going to be satisfied with a beach hold in your life? No. He wants to take over. He wants to ruin you. 
The Bible says Satan's purpose for all of us is to steal, kill, and destroy. I said it before, and it's still worth writing down. The devil doesn't work by explosion, but by erosion. What do I mean? Well, in the same way a woman doesn't become a drunk after just one martini, or a man doesn't become addicted to pornography after one visit to a website, sin has a way of slowly eroding morality and integrity until one day a person wakes up and they can't believe where their life has ended up. A man doesn't just wake up one morning and decide, I think I'm going to destroy my marriage and my family today by having an affair with my secretary. No, instead it's the casual flirting and the business lunches that may go on for months that slowly erodes the man's fortitude. It's that touch on the shoulder that lingers for a few seconds too long. And then one day it all explodes in a fit of passion. But really the explosion was just the end result of the slow and steady erosion upon that man's character. And very often, as we saw, the trouble is originally caused by mankind's own sin and folly. If we're not careful, we too can bring about our own downfall. In closing, I read the Eskimos have an interesting way of hunting bear. They will take a bone, preferably a pliable wolf bone, and they will sharpen it at both ends. Then they will coil it through a process. They'll freeze it in blubber and lay it across the path that they know the bears will travel. As the bear comes along, he smells the blubber, and in one gulp, he takes and swallows the bone. Not knowing that it's just blubber on the outside, but on the inside, there's a twisted, sharpened bone. And the minute he swallows it, he's dead. Oh, he doesn't drop down dead immediately, but every move he makes and every step he takes causes that bone to twist and slash and to tear, and the internal bleeding starts, and the Eskimos just follow the tracks of the bear until he dies. It's the same way for a person who says, I'm going to live my life the way that I want. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't care what God or anyone else thinks about it. The thing is, when a person decides to live that way, they are already in the process of dying and destroying their lives. They're like dead men walking. And if that is you this morning and you're tired of living that way, I'd love to talk to you after church. And Father, we are so thankful that you have given us a way out, Lord, that we can have life and life more abundantly. You are the only true source of joy and anything that we try to put in your place never lasts. It may give us momentary happiness, but it can't give us lasting joy. So do the work in each heart here that needs to be done. Ask in Christ's name, amen.